Welcome to Season of the Bench, the leftist podcast that puts the rad in radicalization. Today we have Kellen, Laura, and Hope. And so we wanted to start this episode. We're going to get into some really interesting history, um, but we wanted to start this episode by really reaching out and thanking anyone who came to our live show, anyone who helped out with the live show, particularly our host, Marissa. They are amazing, and we're really lucky to have had them you know, ask us a bunch of questions. And if you missed our live show and missed the recording, um, the recording is up on Patreon now. You will be able to hear from Marissa next week because they're going to do an episode with us. So really excited about that. But thank you to everyone who worked on everything and got the coven together. It was super fun. Yeah. So that's a big part of why we've been on leave for the last couple of weeks, but we're excited to be back. And today we're going to be looking at the summer of 1968, which was a massively important moment for the U.S. In, and also just the world writ large and particularly the organized left. So just like as a little bit of introduction as I said, 1968, hugely important as an entire year. And we could do like a full podcast on just the first month alone, which included like the Tet Offensive, um, which was a major development in the Vietnam War, one um, that showed Americans at home just how badly things were going for them and like that whole imperialist adventure in Vietnam. And then also like the deaths of Robert Walker and Echo Cole on the job as sanitation workers in Tennessee, which kicked off a major public services strike there. But we only have so much time, and um, it's the summer when things really start to heat up. <laughs> Pun intended. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> thanks, y'all. Appreciate the laughs. Um, there's stuff I really wanted to cover when I was like thinking through this episode um, that might not fit perfectly into a typical definition of summer. I'm doing air quotes here, um, which is fine because seasons are an oppressive structure anyway. And um, you know what? Fuck it. I'm not going to come up with a reason. We're just going to start in March. Hell Let's yeah, go. girl. You don't need a reason for the season. Hey. <laughs> Uh, I'm pretty sure season of the bitch is all year long. So that's right. That's right. (laughs) So yeah, (laughs) to dive into our, our little retrospective, um, we're going to start in March because some of the major events that happened in the year sort of started then. And, I think it's really important um, to note that when you're doing, you're trying to do something as massive as like history that's international of a few months in as short of a time as like podcast provides that it's going to be, it has the potential to be a little bit disjointed. Um, We're going to try to go kind of in chronological order of events while still trying to tie things together and sort of show linkages um, between the events that are happening. Uh, so I hope I'm hoping that we do a decent enough job that y'all can follow along. This is sort of partly argumentation, but also partly just like an explainer of the crazy things that happened in this really important period of time. Hell yeah. So with all of that being said, 
the spring semester of 1968 saw massive demonstrations from students across the country. Um, And also, this was a major trend globally, really. And um, Laura is going to talk a little bit more about what happened in France. And we're going to get into stuff that happened in Mexico as well. And so, you know, starts in March, but continues through May, which encroaches on summer territory. And it would be impossible to cover everything that happened, um, all the different campuses that saw massive protests. Um, so I'll just focus on a few. And I, I wanted to start with Howard University. So Howard, as y'all are probably aware, is a historically black college in D.C., and it's where the first major student occupations of 1968 took place. On March 19th, hundreds of students entered the main administration building and they just like refused to leave. The immediate question obviously that arises is why? Uh, They had a number of issues that they sought to change, but a lot of them could be traced back to the more paternalistic traditions of the school that sort of dated back to its founding as a white-run institution for black students. Um, This is another example of the sort of age-old tradition of kids outpacing the adults that are supposed to be, you know, watching over them um, in terms of radicalism. So at Howard, for example, they could be kicked out without any sort of process for what was called unbecoming behavior. But just as importantly, the curriculum at Howard wasn't at all reflective of its students' experiences or interests. So like they didn't offer black history classes at all. Students there were arguing that like literature and music courses reflected the white canon uh, much more than they did the rich traditions of black Americans. And so it's from these concerns that the slogan, Howard is not a black university, sprang. The administration reacted by literally shutting down the entire school and like telling parents from all over the country that they needed to come get their kids and like move them out of the dorm rooms immediately. Um, so that was a whole a whole big thing. And um, I was looking at a, a an article from a newspaper in 68 as this was happening, and one administration official told local newspapers that he didn't know when the university would start classes back up again, but he did say that, quote, when it does reopen, it will reopen for students who want to go to college and not for students who want to sit in the administration building. Mm. <laughs> anyway... After several days, the university actually ended up exceeding to many of the demands of the protesters, um, building, uh, or excuse me, including that the curriculum be meaningfully changed over the coming years. It was like the first major success of its kind, um, and other radical student groups would follow Howard's lead. Perhaps the the largest such example took place at Columbia University in New York. For my knowledge on this subject, I am much indebted to Professor Eric Foner, who, in addition to teaching on the subject during his last semester before retirement, also actually participated in the demonstrations as a grad student in the same history department where I now work. So I should also add that while I might be accused of personal bias uh, or perhaps of overstating the importance of Columbia's demonstrations, they were probably the most significant in the country that year. So like Howard, students stayed to sit in of the administration building, but they also took over several other campus buildings. The students' demands uh, were multifaceted. They wanted the school to stop working with weapons researchers that were making the Vietnam War possible. They called on the school to halt its gentrification of surrounding Harlem, including a particularly ill-conceived effort to build a school gym in Morningside Park, which was a public city green space. SDS, um, Students for a Democratic Society, which is an important new left organization of the 1960s, played a major role in organizing the sit-ins, as did the SAS, uh, which was a Columbia-specific group, the Student Afro Society. 
African-American students were really frustrated um, by racial profiling, by campus security, um, by the unfair treatment they frequently received in the classroom and on sports teams, and of course, by the university's continuing displacement of black Harlem residents. So black students and the SAS independently occupied a separate building from the other mostly white protesters. The occupations effectively shut down the whole school, um, but sympathetic and leftist professors and grad students held teach-ins so that learning could continue. So they viewed that as the primary um, goal of universities. I, I feel like we could learn a lot from that right now. But anyway, my frustration with administrations aside, the peaceful protested, protests ended after several days when on April 30th, the NYPD sent in a massive squad to clear the buildings. The police used clubs and tear gas, which led to over 130 students getting injured. And although the occupation itself had been violently suppressed, protesters from the class of 1968 demonstrated their continued dedication to their cause by holding an alternative graduation a few weeks later. The press also followed the events closely. There's like a lot of New York Times articles uh, having contemporaneously about all of this, which meant a lot of negative coverage for Columbia. And in the end, like at Howard, the, the protests were successful in a couple major ways, including that Columbia ended its research work with uh, weapons developers and the plan to build a school gym and a public Harlem Park was scrapped. Mm. Yeah. So similar protests took place across the country in the spring and into the summer. On the other end of town, NYU students staged protests against their administration for allowing Dow Chemicals, which were the producers of napalm, to recruit on their campus. On the other end of the country, high school students in East LA staged their own walkouts with more than 20,000 students participating, which is just wild to me. The largely Latinx students in the East LA school systems demanded not just better schools, because um, theirs were among the worst funded and worst performing in the city, but also better representation at those schools. Um, like the Howard protesters, they demanded to be taught their own history. Um, the students were immediately met with LAPD officers in riot gear, but they still persisted in their demonstrations. And they also received immediate results, including smaller class sizes, bilingual education, and increased Latinx attendance at UCLA, uh, one of the flagship UC schools, and obviously the one that's in the city. Um, but more than that, the East LA walkouts were considered a major galvanizing moment for the nascent Chicano movement in the United States. Um, also uh, were really impactful in demonstrating that there was sort of a massive need, just like the, the Howard students uh, showed, for culturally specific education. So in the coming years, you start to see demands. California is a big place where this is happening for Black history, Chicano history, specific departments and universities. Hell yeah. yeah. So that was, yeah, that was pretty big. And the the student activists, especially the students of color who, who were engaging in all of this, derived a real sense of urgency from another major event, um, which took place on April 4th. And that was the assassination of Martin Luther King. So he he had been in Memphis for the sanitation workers strike I mentioned in the intro. The, the mostly black men who were sanitation workers in the city were striking because of their low wages. The city actually paid them less than white men as a, as a policy. And um, the paltry protections and what was often a dangerous job as evidenced by the deaths of the two men while they were on the clock in January. So most people listening to the show probably know that Dr. King became increasingly radical and increasingly socialist 
in his later years. The Vietnam War played an important role in radicalizing him, and he began to argue for solidarity with the Vietnamese people as part of a campaign against what he called the three evils, militarism, poverty, and racism. King's last speech was delivered a few nights before he died in front of an audience of working class municipal strikers. And it really represents how, by the end of his life, King was zeroing in on intersections of racist and capitalist oppression and explicitly centering those struggles. So at any rate, uh, he was shot dead a few days later on April 4th um, by a racist. Riots broke out across the country in response. The latter half of the 1960s saw major riots basically every summer in reaction to various manifestations of American racism. And the, the murder of Dr. Martin Luther King was no... Um, no exception. So in D.C., President Johnson responded to angry protesters by approving a military occupation of the city, apparently the largest such occupation on U.S. soil since the Civil War and Reconstruction, with more than 15,000 police and federal troops patrolling the city and armored guards stationed at national monuments. Even the more fuck? police... Sorry. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like, you can Google this, actually, if you're listening on your phone or with a computer nearby. Um, you can see pictures of, like, guys with machine guns hanging out outside, like, the Washington Monument and, like, the White House. So that, yeah, that happens. Even more police, uh, National Guardsmen and Army soldiers uh, were at work in Chicago. Um, side note, it's likely that two major gangs were actually better peacekeepers than these authorities as a gang truce on the south side meant violence was minimal there um, as compared to the west side, which was where most of the, the conflagration was centered. Um, Kansas City, as another example, only saw violence after police set off tear gas in crowds of peaceful protesters. Wilmington, Delaware was occupied by the National Guard for more than nine months after the assassination. The list goes on. For many Black Americans, obviously, King's assassination was just further confirmation of how thoroughly rotten and thoroughly racist American society was. Um, and I think the the response that, you know, the really angry response is um, completely understandable in that context. But as a final note, Coretta Scott King led a massive silent remember, remembrance, 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 <laughs> March that duly honored her husband and the striking workers he had come to Memphis to work with um, a few days after his death. And then about a week after that, the city reached an agreement with the strikers, um, both raising their wages and recognizing their union. So, mm. and that at least, um, King had certainly been successful, although after his death. Damn. Thank you for, for doing the work because all that stuff's really intense, but so crucial. Um, so we're going to move right along through the summer um, <laughs> and uh, we're going to open it up into more of an international framework. So I want to start by saying that most of what I'm about to say comes directly from this anarchist pamphlet that uh, is about 1968. And then it also included eyewitness accounts of like from 1968 and the events that happened in France. Uh, also, I'm really bad at pronouncing French things, but uh, c'est la vie. So, <laughs> leading up to the <laughs> the summer of '68, France was on the verge of a total revolt with 12 million workers on strike, 122 factories occupied, and students fighting against the old system in which they found themselves. So in the late 60s, France, France's real wages were on the rise, but large sections of the working class were still suffering from low pay. 
This was despite foreign trade having tripled. 25% of workers were receiving less than 500 francs, or what is now 46 euros per month, and some unskilled workers were only getting 400 francs per month. Unemployment was at half a million in a period that was considered a post-war boom. Trade union membership had dropped to around 3 million as opposed to 7 million in 1945. So weird how pay rates correlate almost directly with union membership. So odd how that is. Um, Sorry to interrupt. Please. No, sorry. In the preceding 10 years leading up to 1968, the student population had risen from 170,000 to 514,000. Although the state had provided some funding, this was not equal to the huge increase of students it had asked the universities and colleges to take. The total area covered by university premises had doubled since 1962, but student numbers had almost tripled. So facilities were desperately inadequate and overcrowding was a really huge issue. Um, so the French were also in line with the student occupations that Kellen spoke about before. And Nanterre, a university that was built outside of Paris for the specific purpose of dealing with the, the growth of students, an anarchist publication with eyewitness accounts to these events called it a, quote, new soulless campus built to cater to the increased influx of students. So in similarly to what, you know, happened in in Howard and Columbia and and. NYU, um, students were really angry that they weren't able to study what they what they thought was important and they weren't able to actually access education in the way that we all can agree that universities are, are supposed to provide. So they there was a group of students which end up being called the Nanterre Eight. But so after an occupation of the dean's office, um, the eight Nanterre students were going to trial um, and students met in front of the Sorbonne to demonstrate. So a massive fight ensued between cops and students from Nanterre and Sorbonne. And the Sorbonne was closed for the second time in over a 700-year history. The only other time was in 1940 when the Nazis took Paris. Oh, my God. It's just wild. It's like, so the, wild. The fact that... I think it's really telling that the fact that, like, radical like students, I mean, quote unquote, radical students who are demanding what seem to be like relatively innocuous things are like on par with the Nazis as the only only thing to have caused the Sorbonne to close. For sure. Just For like sure. very, very, very telling of uh, how the, the left is viewed. But anyway, please. No, for real. Please continue. So... The National Union of Students and the Lecturers Union immediately called a strike and issued the following demands. Number one, reopen the Sorbonne. Number two, withdraw the police. And number three, release those arrested. Um, and then, so on Monday, May 6th, the Nanterre 8 and many others passed through a police enclosure singing the Internationale. Nice. It's like I get goosebumps reading this uh, when I was like first reading through the whole thing. Um, they were on their way to appear before the university discipline committee. The students decided to march through Paris and on their return to the Latin Quarter, they were savagely attacked by police on Rue Saint-Jacques. The students tore up paving stones and overturned cars to form barricades. Police pumped tear gas into the air and called for reinforcements. 
The Boulevard St. Germain became a bloody battleground with the official figures at the end of the day reading 422 arrests and 345 policemen injured. This day was to go into history as Bloody Monday. Nearly 400 people were hospitalized. Leftist students began calling for radical economic and political change in France, and union leaders planned strikes in support of the students. A long march followed on the Tuesday, and by outmaneuvering the police, red and black flags were draped from the Arc de Triomphe, and the Internationale echoed in the streets. Like, that imagery alone just makes me, like, so freaking pumped. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's like, yes. like, just, like, red and black flags hanging from the Arc de Triomphe, the Internet. I want to, like, ugh. I just want to, like, rejoice when I think about this. But, um... The week continued on in a similar fashion, and the streets were alive with crowds and talks of politics. By Wednesday, the public opinion was shifting. The middle classes were appalled by the brutality dished out to the students by the police, and large sections of the working class were inspired by the students' stomach for a fight against the state. On Friday, May 10th, 30,000 students, including high school students, had gathered around the Place de Fret Russia cow. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sorry. Je ne parle pas en français. They marched towards the. <laughs> they marched towards the Sorbonne across the Boulevard Saint Germain. All roads leading off the boulevard were blocked by police armed for conflict. Fifty barricades were erected by the demonstrators in preparation for an attack by the police. Jean-Jacques Lebel, a reporter, wrote that by 1 a.m., quote, literally thousands helped barricades, women, workers, bystanders, people in pajamas, human chains to carry rocks, iron, wood. Our barricade is double. One three-foot-high row of cobblestones, an empty spate of 20 yards, and then a nine-foot-high pile of wood, cars, metal posts, dustbins. Our weapons are stones, metal, etc. found in the street, reported one eyewitness. Can Lots of... Talk about, oh, go ahead. Sorry. I was just going to say, I the, I am, I'm like obsessed with the French and their yes. propens- their, their, the frequency with which they're building barricades. Um, <laughs> just like under virtually any circumstances, it seems like the French are out ready to construct barricades. Yeah. And I like really respect their dedication to the art of barricade building. Yeah. Um, absolutely. And the art of revolution too. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, they're, they're into it. Absolutely. So, so sorry to interrupt again. No, um, sorry. Please interrupt and, and never apologize again. <laughs> Uh, Lots of other workers' unions got involved and pressure mounted over the following weeks. By Monday, May 27th, the government had guaranteed an increase of 35% in the industrial minimum wage and an all-around wage increase of 10%. The leaders of the CGT organized a march of 500,000 workers through the streets of Paris two days later. Paris was covered in posters calling for a government of the people and... That's pretty much the picture of what took place. Um, There were a lot of tensions on the left because anarchists led this movement. You know, the red and black flags and the anti-establishment rhetoric are why this massive change really took place. Um, And the communist leaders at the time looked down upon all the stuff that the students were doing and dismissed it outright. Um, 
So I don't want to take up too much time going into this more, but honestly, I would really love for us to do an episode about why why anarchists fucking ruled throughout the 20th century (laughs) and communists like were following Lenin and Stalin in really fucking bad ways. And anarchism is like now a really fringe group. But yeah, I mean, that's May 6th to 27th for you. Oh man, we're gonna get some tankies in our in our mentions. Um, yep, ready for it. <laughs> um, so yeah, so this was really really big news at the time. A lot of people were following what was happening in Paris really closely. Um, but in the United States, that changed certainly after a few days um, because any any post hoc coverage of the events in France was sort of overshadowed by uh, another assassination which took place on June 4th, um, this time of Bobby Kennedy. Um, so as you guys uh, probably know, Bobby Kennedy is JFK's um, brother. He had served in JFK's administration. Obviously, John F. Kennedy had been assassinated about five years prior uh, and Bobby Kennedy met the same fate. And the, well, I am of the opinion that uh, JFK is one of the most overrated presidents in American history yep. and probably would not be nearly as beloved if he weren't hot and assassinated. Um, <laughs> it was still a really big deal when he died on sort of a national level, particularly because of the way that he had worked um, for civil rights. And again, you can critique him on, you know, how he went about that, um, but he he had uh, made steps in that direction, and um, his death actually prompted uh, some significant civil rights gains on the legislative front. So Bobby Kennedy is killed, and there's sort of this massive sense of deja vu. He had been running for the 1968 Democratic presidential nomination. He was in the midst of um, a pretty massive primary fight when this happened. He had also immediately after the death of uh, Martin Luther King Jr. given one of his most famous speeches, which was um, sort of an off, a relatively off-the-cuff eulogy, uh, as he had found out on his way to campaign, sort of as his plane landed, that um, Martin Luther King Jr. had died and broke that news to what ended up being a largely black crowd based on where he had he had been going to, to campaign. Um, so this was another pretty big blow to um, a lot of Black Americans who had really um, appreciated the Kennedy family. Uh, it was a big blow to a lot of people who were sort of more on the liberal side. And it was also just like hugely unnerving, I think, in a way that may be hard for us to appreciate now in an era that has been relatively free of um, political assassinations. Mm. So. The Bobby Kennedy assassination was important for a lot of reasons, and I don't know that we have time to go into, you know, just just into all of them. Um, But I think it was important for our purposes um, for continuing this feeling of sort of unsettling that the ground was sort of shifting beneath us, you know, as these events were happening in quick succession. Um, people were were seeing violence on a massive scale, but also significant gains on the left. And uh, I think Bobby Kennedy's assassination contributed to the sense that like anything was was possible in both a good and a bad way. Totally. But there was still a lot of other stuff going on in D.C. Um, I know Laura wanted to talk about one of those things that happened about two weeks after uh, 
Bobby Kennedy died. Yeah, for sure. So um, I'm going to talk about the Poor People's Campaign. Um, so although Reverend Dr. G- <laughs> <laughs> okay. All the <laughs> Sorry that that was so cute. <laughs> I was like Reverend Dr. Jr. <laughs> Reverend Dr. Jr. <laughs> okay. Although That's not Re- French. Yes, uh mm, les poissons, les poissons. <laughs> Although Reverend Dr. King was assassinated on April 4th, on April 29th the Poor People's Campaign kept moving forward uh it it began in washington where key leaders of the campaign gathered for lobbying effects and media events before dispersing around the country to formally launch the nine regional caravans bringing thousands of participants to washington um the effort the efforts of the poor people's campaign climaxed in the solidarity rally for jobs peace and freedom which happened on june 19th in 1968 50,000 people joined the 3,000 participants living at Resurrection City to rally around the demands of the Poor People's Campaign on Solidarity Day. This was the first and only massive mobilization to take place during the Poor People's Campaign. Bayard Rustin. Bayard Rustin is my favorite gay, my favorite gay communist of the civil rights movement. We've talked about him before and I like am obsessed with him. Yeah. Is rad as fuck. So he put forth a proposal for an economic bill of rights for Solidarity Solidarity Day that called for the federal government to recommit to the Full Employment Act of 1946 and legislate the immediate creation of at least one million socially useful career jobs in public service. Uh, He also asked or put forth in the proposal that they adopt the pending Housing and Urban Development Act of 1968, that they repeal the 90th Congress's punitive welfare restrictions in the 1967 Social Security Act, that they extend to all farm workers the right guaranteed under National Labor Relations Act to organize agricultural labor unions, and that they restore budget cuts for bilingual education, Head Start, Summer Jobs, Economic Opportunity Act, and Elementary and Secondary Education Acts. I'm just over here, like, nodding my head as you're listing off all of these things. Yeah. He clearly, like, had this vision and also, like, understood where the Bill of Rights fucking, you know, has fallen short. <laughs> Uh, yeah, he was he it's worth noting was really um, important in organizing the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. That was, um, you know, the big one where King gave the I have a dream speech, even though um, people aren't as willing to let Bayard talk because uh, he's a communist and is also gay. And uh, that was a lot of attention that people didn't necessarily want on the move at the time and he's also been left out of a lot of movement histories especially earlier histories um for that reason but uh big fan of Bayard Rustin not to you know put the poor people's campaign down to just one guy even though I do really like him and respect him um but I also think it's important and you know noteworthy that 50 years later um we have this massive resurgence of of you know what is actually termed uh, the poor people's campaign which grew out of the moral mondays movement in my home state of north carolina that is trying to bring back sort of the same message of social justice and economic rights um the combination of of like 
King and and Rustin and many other civil rights leaders focus on economic justice, like massive employment, like access to housing, a real significant social safety net, in addition to restrictions on, you know, the ability of of individuals, corporations, and the government to uh, discriminate against black and brown people. So anyway, that's another topic for another time. Um, but I also think it's worth um, just reiterating how much we divorced Dr. King from this legacy mm-hmm. um, in history. You know, he's always sort of like pitted, at least in my education, it's like him and Malcolm X, and you learn like he was a pacifist and he wanted all people to live together, but they really took a lot of the the radical kind of economic analysis and more socialist leanings of him out of all of the history that most people learn. Yeah. And it, it is really significant that Dr. King was influenced by and was surrounded by as well a lot of people who had been really active in um, the communist party and communist movements in the 1930s, which was a real sort of breeding ground for black um, leftism. Although, again, some of that out of pragmatism had to be sort of avoided as the FBI was looking for any reason to, um, yeah, to to cut down on um, black radical activity. Anyway, depressing note. (laughs) Uh, Moving on to more depressing things that happened in 1968. Um, (laughs) I'm going to talk a little bit about the um, DNC held in Chicago in August, late August of 1968. And I was really excited to talk about this because, as it turns out, my grandpa was the regional director of the Office of Economic Opportunity at the time. Um, which was responsible for all anti-poverty activities in Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Minnesota, and Wisconsin. That's so cool. um, Yeah, so I actually grew up as a kid hearing stories about this convention. Um, He was on the inside, basically tasked with um, keeping, keeping the convention going on the inside. So he wasn't doing any of the kind of like security stuff, but they were working directly with Mayor Daly. And um, so I grew up hearing his stories about kind of what it was like for him and the challenges that they faced. And it was cool to have a chance for the podcast to sort of dig into it a little more. Yeah. And I'm glad we didn't curse too much on this episode because I'm probably going to share it with him. When... <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, Grandpa. <laughs> he's, a, he's an amazing man. Um, we don't say that about men very often on the show. So. <laughs> Um, but anyway, fired Rustin. That's it. <laughs> exactly. That's it. Um, but back to the convention. So um, it's definitely enjoyed a degree of infamy. And every year it shows up back in the newspapers and on the news on the anniversary. It seems like it's mostly remembered for the violence and chaos and also the really brazen way the police assaulted even the press. Um, and so that kind of gets repeated every year. Uh, But surprise, surprise, without much analysis. So protests at the convention were planned on the heels of the March on the Pentagon and were initially motivated largely by anti-war resistance, although it's worth noting many other groups participated, um, which was intensifying at the time. So they were kind of moving from protest to more dramatic forms of resistance. And as city and national officials struggled to create plans to manage the protests at the convention, it started to become really clear that Mayor Daly's ego is going to just be fueled to the fire and make everything worse. Um, 
What is daily. It up with Chicago in that? <laughs> like well, Rahm Emanuel, like it's just like these egotistical maniacs. I mean, I guess yeah, you could well, say that for like anyone in power, but I feel like Chicago is kind of notorious. It is. Um, there's the whole idea of like the Chicago machine and it was very kind of mafia-like the way that it was run. So you're not wrong in feeling like that was like, if this had been held in another city, they wouldn't have faced that particular challenge like they did with Mayor Daley. So yeah, especially when we are talking about Mayor Daley and this, um, the Democratic National Convention that was going on, uh, his presence just made things way worse. He was unreasonable. Um, he wasn't working with national security experts and different forces. Um, and he was like going against his own police chief. So none of that was good. Mm. It basically personally insulted him that there were going to be protests at all. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he was like, how dare they? Not in my house. Oh my um, God. Not realizing that this was a national convention. It's, you know, when they were on public land, et cetera, et cetera. Also, as I mentioned, politicians in Chicago pretty much operated like the mafia and they also had gotten through most of the 60s without really having a lot of the riots that happened other places. Like you mentioned, um, they had a lot of security, so they didn't get the kind of riots that D.C. had. So they missed a lot of the race riots and um, had sort of um, worked at placating people with some success up till that point. So all of it was just like pissing him off. So then looking at the national political sphere, what was happening, you have uh, Eugene McCarthy, introduced into the democratic primaries so there was like all this energy back on the electoral system and this also was clashing with daily stubbornness the justice department was recommending mediation and daily was like no we're going to pull the demonstrators permits um we're not going to let them have liaison with the police so he was just like he was trying to strong arm basically um and against all recommendations and they think that this may, like, daily strategy maybe reduce somewhat the size of the overall demonstrations, but it also scared off more moderate or, like, cautious participants. So you just get the most radical and committed people who are just like, I'm going to sleep in the park without a tent. I'm going to be here no matter what. So kind of, like, concentrated all of that energy that was simmering. Yeah. And it, it also, like didn't deter there's some you know like more almost celebrity protesters like abby hoffman who were there helping organize the stuff um there was a lot of there were a number of sort of smaller demonstrations within the larger umbrella of the convention protest including multiple picket lines and marches um you know kids yelling hey hey lbj how many kids did you kill today which is a, a very popular chant um and things got really bad rolls uh, right off sunday the night right <laughs> Um, yeah, things got, got really bad on uh, the Sunday night of the convention at w what Abby Hoffman called a protest music festival. Like only one band actually showed up. So take that with a grain of salt. Um, but police started heckling or rather protesters started heckling the police who had shown up in like really big numbers to enforce the, the curfew um, in the parks that, that Hope was talking about. Um, and so naturally, upon being heckled, the police responded by attacking people particularly with uh, the billy clubs that they were carrying. And of course, all of this got recorded and put on TV. Um, another thing worth mentioning when we're thinking about the police and their interaction with the protesters is that a lot of the police in Chicago had either gone to Vietnam or had immediately family members who were in Vietnam. Mm -hmm. So they felt very personally connected to the war. 
Um, and I think in a lot of interviews since then, you hear police officers saying that they felt like this was like a like directly personal for them. Mm-hmm. So there was that going on at the same time. So when it was broadcast, footage of the clash between protesters and police shocked TV news viewers and I think helped radicalize a lot of especially younger people. So it was sort of a, a pivotal moment in terms of people's political development. But in terms of lasting impact overall, I was sad to read that just a few weeks afterwards, um, only 19% of a national sample thought too much force had been used by the police. And since we know police are still using excessive force, it's pretty safe to say this event didn't substantially change public opinion on police brutality. Mm. Yeah. And to draw another another sort of semi-modern day parallel is um, I think it's worth noting that another major source of opposition to the DNC at the time was its nomination of Hubert Humphrey. So um, the party had been in sort of a state of disarray. Uh, Bobby Kennedy, who had been one of the leading um, contenders for the nomination, obviously had been assassinated about two months prior. LBJ decided relatively last minute that he actually wasn't going to run for re-election, partly as a result of how poorly uh, the war in Vietnam was going, particularly after the Tet Offensive. And then you had Eugene McCarthy, who uh, a lot of people on the left got really excited about. He was an anti-war congressman for Minnesota. He had a surprisingly good early primary showing, despite having had like a bare bones campaign staff that, as far as I can tell, was like entirely comprised of college age volunteers. Um, But he had been the favorite of, you know, many of the SDS types at the protests. Humphrey, the guy that gets the nomination, was not an anti-war guy at all and somehow managed to lose to the charisma black hole that was Richard Nixon that November. So Democrats kind of running on a just pick us, it'll be fine, we promise, with a lackluster war hawk candidate over a much more exciting anti-war leftist. It's so weird how similar that sounds. It sounds kind of familiar, but I'm not sure. Like, I feel it's like just kind of tingling my brain a little bit. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, we fuck it up over and over again, huh? I feel like I, I, <laughs> I'm ready. I'm ready for us to, to jump in at, into what happened after this, if y'all are. Yes, yes. yeah, no need to dwell. Um, so. Moving on, uh, we we in this in this extended summer period uh, around <laughs> September seventh, uh, we have a really really cool moment um, for feminism, and so as y'all know, the Miss America pageant has never been a progressive event. Although, like, quick sidebar. As of a couple years ago, uh, it was the biggest scholarship opportunity for girls in the world. Um, John Oliver, actually, which like I don't ever really highly recommend him, but he had an incredible um, episode, I want to say three years ago, where he he kind of looked into the fact that Miss America is the biggest uh, scholarship pageant for women and girls in the world. And he kind of like kept digging, kept digging, kept digging, kept digging and found out that even though they are giving way less than they say that they are, um, they still were at least as of three years ago, the number one uh, scholarship opportunity for women and girls. So that's fucked up. (laughs) Love it. So uh, the pageant in 1968 sparked a feminist revolution. So 
as women organized the first protest against Miss America, they were responding not only to the pageant as its antiquated misogynistic attitudes towards women and beauty, but also how the United States as a whole treated women. Uh, Many now hail this protest as the opening spark of second wave feminists, uh, the second wave feminist movement in America. Um, Less well known is that they saw the pageant as the nexus of many problems within American society, racism, war, capitalism, and even ageism. The organizers had roots in radical leftist causes, including the civil rights and anti-Vietnam War movements. Yeah, I'm think this is an important point. Um, I'm thinking right now, actually, of a girl I went to college with who's like written about beauty pageants um, and seems to see like beauty standards as the end all be all of, of women's liberation. Um, although, in fairness, she also cares about abortion. Uh, but this this sort of position kind of strikes me as the ultimate in what has been termed white feminism. Like, yes, beauty standards are oppressive, but critiquing them without a recognition of how they play into the nexus of oppression where gender collides with race and class results in liberation for like white women only without, you know, even getting into the the dynamics of um, like disability, fat phobia, trans rights, all of that kind of stuff. In the same way that like legal abortion only benefits the women who can afford it, and can't be the end all be all of our politics. So um, at its best, I think what was offered by this uh, protest is is all of that, like a, a real critique of not just beauty standards for beauty standards sake, but beauty standards within a racist capitalist society. At its worst, the protest reinforced some of the less productive aspects of second wave feminism, like its frequent grounding in what might be termed white women's issues. Um, after all, the first black woman to even compete in Miss America, Cheryl Brown Hollingsworth, was still two full years away from winning her Miss Iowa crown in 1968. Yeah, for sure. Um, so this 1968 uprising was conceived by a radical feminist named Carol Hanish, who proper, pro, blah, popularized the phrase, the personal is political. Hell yeah. Disrupting the beauty context, contest, she thought... In the summer of that year, it just might be the way to bring the fledgling women's liberation movement into the public arena. So on August 22nd, the New York Radical Women issued a press release inviting, quote, women of every political persuasion to the Atlantic City Boardwalk on September 7th, which was the day of the contest. They would protest the image of Miss America, an image that oppresses women in every area in which it purports to represent us. The protest would feature a freedom trash can into which women could throw away all the physical manifestations of women's oppression, such as bras, girdles, curlers, false eyelashes, wigs, and representative issues of cosmopolitan, ladies' home (laughs) journal, family circle, etc. The organizers also proposed a concurrent boycott of companies whose products were either used in or sponsored by the pageant, or sponsored the pageant itself. Male reporters would not be allowed to interview protesters either. So the (laughs) org pretty crucial. The organizers also issued a document offering 10 reasons why they were protesting with detailed explanations, a womanifesto, if you will. We are all about the puns this episode. Uh, Yes. Yes. One contention was the degrading mindless boob girly symbol. Another was racism since a woman of color had never won and there had never been a black contestant. Um, Mm -hmm. nor has there ever been a true Miss America, an American Indian, they wrote. 
They also protested the military-industrial complex and the role of Miss America as a death mascot in entertaining the troops. They pointed to the con consumerist nature of corporate sponsorship of the pageant and the valuing of beauty as a measure of woman's worth. They lamented that with the crowning of every new Miss America, the previous winner was forced into pop culture obsolescence. They rejected the double standard that contest contestants were forced to be both sexy and wholesome, delicate but able to cope, demure, let titilla titillatingly bitchy. <laughs> the pageant like represented... That. Yeah, it's good. <laughs> titillatingly bitchy. Yes. The pageant represented the elevation of mediocrity. W American women were encouraged to be, quote, unoffensive, bland, and apolitical. And instilled in this impoverished ambition in young girls, no more Miss America. Um, so the organizers obtained a permit detailing their plans for the protests, including barring men from participating. And on the afternoon of September 7th, a few hundred women marched on the Atlantic City boardwalk just outside of the convention center where the pageant took place. Protesters held signs such as all women are beautiful. Cattle parades are for deme are demeaning to human beings. Don't be a playboy accessory accessory and can make up hide the wounds of our oppression. While the 1968 protests may not have done much to change the nature of Miss America, the Miss America pageant, they did introduce feminism into the mainstream consciousness and expand the national conversation about rights and liberation of women. The first wave of feminism, which focused on suffrage, began in the late 19th century, and many historians now credit this protest as the beginning of feminism's broader second wave. Um, and just as they, like looked back on it, you know, as feminists are likely to do. Uh, the organizers were later relentless in critiquing their own efforts. Um, in November of 1968, Carol Hanish wrote that one of our biggest mistakes of the whole pageant was our anti-womanism. Miss America and all beautiful women came off as our enemy instead of our sisters who suffer with us. So I think this is a fair criticism um, and I think self-analysis is a really important part of organizing. And thinking about this, I wanted to ask a personal question to both of you. Basically, since we all consider ourselves socialist feminists, do either of you feel like feminists today are addressing this issue? And is it something you've struggled with, like being on either side of it? Do you mean about Miss America as a whole or about like the centrism of beauty? Yeah, more of feeling like it's anti-woman, um, mm. sort of like beautiful, like feeling uh, as a feminist, like you shouldn't wear makeup or you shouldn't wear a bra or you shouldn't oh, yeah. embrace beauty. Because um, I think that's to me what her self-criticism really is here, that instead of being pro, you know, all people being able to express themselves in whatever way they want, it comes off as very sort of like anti-beauty, anti-woman in a way that I think you know, feminism has been sort of defending that for a long time in my mind. So Absolutely. I just thought that might be a fun chance for us to talk about our own experiences. For sure. I, I think that this is a mistake that all of the waves of feminism have struggled with, um, including third wave, like in the early 90s. And, you know, I think only now, um, which like some people consider the feminist movement now to be an extension of the third wave. But I would argue that it's it's quite distinct from what was going on in the early 90s. Um, mm -hmm. But really, you know, between the first wave 
second wave and the third wave. Um, first wave, I guess, not so much because it wasn't really something that anyone really talked about. But in the second and third wave, yeah, there was totally this like um, pushback on traditional sexism, I guess, you know, where like women were forced to wear makeup in the workplace, things like that. And so I think a lot of that rhetoric came as a direct response to a lot of what was going on. And even in the 90s with the Riot Girl movement, we saw that like not shaving your armpits and a lot of these other things really became a, a crucial piece to that movement. Um, not all across the board um, because a lot of the women in the punk scene were still, you know, wearing lipstick and things like that. But um, it definitely was some some sort of central theme. And I always felt uncomfortable with it. And I, I particularly am grateful to a friend I had in undergrad when I wasn't shaving my armpits um, because she uh, was a black woman or is a black woman. She didn't change. Uh, and she was like, it is a privilege in a lot of ways for you to be able to not shave your legs and not shave your armpits because people will look at me a whole lot differently than they will look at you when you do that. And I was never someone that was like, saying like no one should shave their legs or anything like that but it really made me like step back and think about it and think about why we have those sorts of notions and why we have any sort of issue with women doing whatever the fuck they want like us put saying that like you shouldn't be beholden to this level of beauty it it has in the past come also with this judgment if women choose to do that and I think Mm -hmm. that Feminists now are, are, or at least there's much more conversations about how women should do whatever the fuck they want. I'm sorry, Hope's grandpa. Ah. <laughs> uh, like we, but truly, it's more about, um, it's more about just giving women the freedom to make the choice to do whatever they want. And yeah, you know, I think I think that that's really for me what is most important is yeah. If you want to wear makeup because, like, you like wearing makeup and it makes you feel like a powerful badass, like, good for you. Like, I think that's great. If you don't want to because of whatever reasons you don't want to, that's great, too. And I think the the bigger movement I see now happening is women taking the judgment out of our conversations with each other. Like, we are – I think we – at least I I – maybe I'm in, like, a bubble, but I feel like – the feminist conversations are much more supportive and much less judgmental than they were uh, when when it was like we need to construct conscribe to these specific looks. Yeah, yeah. I do just... feel sometimes like people couch it as self-care now as a defense too. like I'm not into beauty standards. It's just self-care. And I think we have to make it OK for people to just like it's OK to just want to look how you want to look. And I think we've extended that not, not just to women now, but also to men, which I think is also Mm -hmm. helping. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Before I, you know, before we get back into 1968, I'll just add that. I think something that a couple things that have, that have made that sort of change possible. Um, Although I will say that, like, I do worry sometimes that like, I won't be taken seriously in left circles if I look too feminine or too like quote unquote pretty. Um, is but two things that I think have made it easier to to be more you know feminine presenting is um, one the sort of rise of 
like the trans rights movement and a recognition among a lot of feminists in a way that I think kind of differentiates this moment from the third wave that Flora was talking about that um, like transgender people are what they say they are um, that, you know, like regardless of what gender you're assigned at birth, like you can be a woman or you can be a man or you can be neither. And that like that kind of identification is valid, I think really disrupts our notions of gender in general, but also gender presentation, what should be expected of anybody. Um, and I think that sort of a, a feminist embrace of the fluidity of gender makes gender presentation across mm. the spectrum more legitimate, regardless of what it is um, and how you're you know, expressing yourself, which I think is um, pretty cool and, and something that like cis women who want to present as you know pretty feminine actually like that's something that you like the 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 ability to kind of do that in left circles is something that you kind of owe in a lot of ways to um the demands that have been made by trans women in particular but also non-binary people who you know may may present as masculine one day and, and feminine as another in another Another thing that I think has made it more possible is the like availability of relatively high quality beauty products at a low price mm. um, that's made makeup and sort of an accessible art form in a way for a lot of especially younger people and the access to social media that's kind of enabled people to learn makeup on themselves as an art form and that that's a way that a lot of people are able to express themselves um, without spending a lot of money, I think makes a big difference as well. So that's Absolutely. my spiel. Anyway, I guess we could go back to 1968. Uh, <laughs> we're going to bring it into October and, and wrap it up there. Um, I so love summer in October. I love it too. Global warming. You know what I mean? Oh God. Uh, yeah. So as we've seen transitioning, Student activism um, was not just limited to the United States, nor was it limited to uh, what we might call the global north. So at the beginning of October, just before the opening of the 1968 Summer Olympics, which ahem, suggests I am not the only one willing to stretch the definition of summer to include October. Hell yeah. Students amassed in La Plaza de las Tres Culturas in Mexico City. Over the summer, students from 70 schools had come together to form a national strike council. Their demands um, may have seemed more detached from education than the, some of the demonstrators we had been talking about in other countries, uh, as they mainly revolved around the end of police brutality and state political repression. But these concerns stemmed from the material reality that they faced as students, as evidenced um, in a, by a number of incidents over the course of the previous year, including a massive police riot assault on a Mexico City secondary school in July. Um, there had been some reported gang activity, which I think amounted to like kids throwing rocks through windows um, and uh, riot police responded. Uh, the protests in October also built on momentum from August demonstrations that had brought some 50,000 university students out in the streets calling for an end to police brutality and political intervention into university affairs. And September, in September, um, a number of university occupations sprung up that were similar to the ones in the United States and France. On October 2nd, a day of peaceful protest marked by speeches was planned for one of Mexico City's central plazas. The roughly 10,000 protesters were met by 5,000 soldiers and their helicopters and tanks. 
police, um, which included a secret police force that was put together to ensure the smooth running of the Olympics, ended up firing indiscriminately into the crowds. Um, Mm. They hit activists and bystanders alike. And after the square had cleared, they went house by house in the nearby area seeking out participants. Um, The police rounded up student protesters in a nearby building and stripped and beat them. And in recent years, actually, I, I just read about this getting ready for this episode. It's been revealed that government snipers fired into the crowd at the sort of to kick off the violence, both to obviously hit protesters, but also to provide cover for the sort of like Han shot first narrative of the soldiers on the ground. We actually still don't know today how many people died in the Tela Teloco Teloco massacre. I hope I pronounced that close to clo- close to accurate. It's an it can't indigenous be word. worse than how I was pronouncing French words. So I think you're doing really good. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> But uh, but yeah, it was likely likely as many as 400 dead, um, with more than 1,300 protesters arrested. So this kind of leads us into one of the last things that we wanted to talk about from the long summer of 1968, uh, which is the Olympics that took place in Mexico. Which again, 1968 Summer Olympics, still summer. So despite Mexican officials' attempts to make sure that the Olympics proceeded without controversy, um, the Mexico City Games obviously emerged as a site of protest. And I think probably the most iconic image from the entire Olympics that year is um, the athletes Tommy Smith and John Carlos, who were Americans, um, who took first and third place in the 200-meter race. And um, probably everybody has seen the image of them lifting black gloved fists in the air in a black power salute um, as the American national anthem played. So one thing that's interesting to note about this is that Smith and Carlos had actually carefully orchestrated their protests. They knew that they were likely to meddle um, and they had taken the time to really put thought into this, um, into the the uh, aesthetic, into the the image that they were putting forward in a way that I didn't know again until I was uh, putting, you know, getting ready for this episode. So. Smith and Carlos, in addition to wearing black gloves, stood without shoes on the podium with their um, pant legs rolled up to really emphasize the fact that they didn't have shoes on as a nod to black poverty in the United States. Carlos unzipped his track jacket in what he intended as a display of solidarity with the U.S. working class and also wore a prayer necklace in honor of the victims of American lynching, slavery, and the Middle Passage. Smith wore a black scarf to emphasize a message of black pride. And an interesting side note, I also found out they had both they had intended to wear gloves on both of their hands, but one of them forgot their gloves, his gloves uh, in his room that day. And the Australian medalist who was in second and stood with them silently as they um, they did their protest suggested that they just split the one pair of gloves that remained, which is why they are holding up opposite fists in the pictures. Oh, yeah. <laughs> so um, the two from of them Australia. were ejected. <laughs> The two of them were um, objected, ejected rather from the Mexico City Games the next day, and they were both blacklisted from Olympic competition despite being at the height of their careers. So, like Carlos set the 100-year, sorry, the 100-yard dash record um, in 1969, for example, um, or 100 meter. I'm gonna be honest, I don't. One of the two, a meter is only three inches longer than a yard, so I'm roughly correct either way. <laughs> The decision was made made as an effort to keep the Olympics apolitical. It was really important. 
important to the uh, the event holders. But as Smith and Carlos uh-huh. knew, international games um, were anything but. And of course, we're still having conversations today about Black athletes using their platform to protest. So we haven't really come that far on that issue. Yeah, absolutely. And like anyone who thinks anything is apolitical needs to like remember that everything is political. <laughs> yeah, I think that's like one of the things that really came out of the events of 1968 was this redefinition, sort of a public redefinition of what is political. Obviously, the, what is actually political didn't change, but how we thought about it did. So like, See, Lawrence, you noted feminists were arguing that the personal is political um, and other people kind of took it further, you know, to show that politics were inescapable. So they, yeah. you know, the, the women that Laura talked about made the Miss America beauty pageant an explicitly political site. John Carlos and Tommy Smith did the same for the Olympics. And like, of course, schools are the site of politics, as any devotee of Foucault knows. Lots of French words there. Um, and they had been an explicitly political subject in the U.S. since the civil rights movement and the battles over desegregation. But students in 1968 showed the public that schools were not only political sites for who they let attend. So like from D.C. to California to Mexico to France, young people made it really clear that what schools chose to teach their pupils was also an explicitly political choice. And young people demanded the opportunity to set their own curriculums and like more specifically to learn outside the bounds of hegemonic, nationalistic, frequently racist frameworks, you know, Mm. all of which I think is pretty cool. Hell yeah. That's a lot. That's a lot of fucking things. <laughs> to throw out one other thing that, I mean, there's a lot of things we can pull from 1968, but sort of a more depressing thing is, I guess, the extent to which the state was willing to go from a lot of different perspectives in a lot of different states uh, to silence dissent. So, so many of the things that we've talked about have ended with <laughs> police riots. And by that, I mean specifically the police being the ones doing the rioting, uh, whether, you know, you're talking about secret police forces in Mexico or police officers in Kansas City, Missouri, whether you're talking about suppression of student protests or black frustration, there's really like a lot of state violence that is interwoven throughout all of these stories. It's almost like the state is an extension of capital. What? What? Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of these, all of these movements, really, that we're talking about, threaten the status quo in really significant ways. Um, you know, whether it's the hegemony of, you know, the Western canon and how it's taught at schools, whether it's like the sanctity of of gender roles that the Miss America pageant protects and defends, whether it's like uh, the uncontested support for a war that was massacring Vietnamese and like pouring capital into the hands of U.S. weapons manufacturers. Like this was a really turbulent time and we saw a lot of state crackdown as a result of the activism that that people were, you know, putting their lives on the line to affect. A state can can suck it. <laughs> but it also, I think, it, it can also be heartening because so many things, there were, there were successes, you know, like especially on the front of like the labor 
labor movements and educational movements. I think there there is like a little bit of light and at the very least something that I think today's left can really learn from looking at what happened in 1968, you know, both to be skeptical of, you know, the state and the police, if you weren't already those things, but also like the ways that like labor militancy really can can work, you know, so that's my take anyway. Yeah, be the be the red and black flag hanging from the Arc de Triomphe with the international playing in the background that you want to see in the world. It's beautiful, Laura. And that's a great way to end this episode. Yes. Uh, we are out of time, so we got this. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This one was a dense little doozy. <laughs> yeah. A dense doozy. A little dense Crammed doozy. Crammed a lot of info into this one. Um, and so, as always, you can follow us on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. You can, if you like what we do, support us on Patreon. It really helps us out. Um, Even if you don't like what we do and you still want to give us money, I think we're probably okay with uh, that. Definitely. Definitely okay with it. Um, you can always rate, review, subscribe on iTunes. We have merch available on our website. I think that's it. Yep. All right, y'all. Until next week. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye. Bitch.